Good morning. For those of you to whom I might be a stranger, my name is A.K. Kuravilla. My wife Susan and I attend Bay City Fellowship at the Spring Branch Campus, so that's why you don't see us here every Sunday. But it's a privilege to be here to share with you what God has laid on my heart, and uh, we'll trust God to bless us. After four and a half months without a job, last Monday I got one. I got laid off from my job at the end of February, part of the oil market downturn. It was the first time that I ever got laid off, so that was a new experience for me. We love new experiences, but that particular one was not (laughs) desirable. Uh, But uh, it was a time of trial for about four and a half months. So my wife and I decided, all right, so we've got to watch out for this anxiety problem. I mean, how do we deal with that, right? So we look at the words of Jesus. He says, watch the ravens in the air. Uh, What do they do? Uh, Well, the birds wake up. They go around, turn every twig and stone, and look for the worms, trusting that God has already provided for it. Right? So we said, all right, we'll just keep talking to people and applying and keep going. and see what God would do. Now, this period of waiting, obviously, can be a patience test. It was in our case. There were many opportunities that came by, came so close, went away. Uh, There were things that looked very attractive that just kind of flew away. All of that to say that was a real patience-testing time for us in our lives. Now, what does prayer look like? during a difficult time of waiting? What does it look like when your patience is being tested? I mean, really tested. So maybe it is patience with a friend. Uh, Maybe it is patience with a spouse. Uh, Maybe it's patience with children. And you know, patience is the first attribute of love. We We all know 1 Corinthians, love is patient. And so the test of patience... Uh, becomes very difficult for us. And what might our prayer look like when that happens? What does prayer look like while everything looks good on life's highway? Now, the Bible is full of prayers. And what I want for us to do this morning is to look at a very familiar prayer, Psalm 139, uh, composed by the great King David. Now, all scripture, the Bible tells us, is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that you and I may be competent and adequate for every good work. So, this is for us today, so that we may be competent and adequate for every good work. So, we look here not for a lesson on history or truth or morals, But we look here to see God who is revealing himself to us in his word, right? So that's the posture with which we are going to approach this. So, first of all, it is a psalm of David, and it is written for the choir master or the choir director. The previous psalm that was written for the choir master was in Psalm 109, so it was a while back. So all the psalms were not written for choir masters or choir directors. So we can say, well, uh, there is a musical component to this. This was probably set to music. 
And that should not be surprising because music, as you well know, has a way of bypassing the mind and getting straight to the heart. So if you ask me, G, uh, uh, AK, uh, how, do you know that Jesus loves you? I'll say, yes, I know Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. <laughs> now, that simple truth, very accurate, that we teach our children. Yes, the love of Jesus has nuances and layers of theology, theological meaning, and we can go into all of that, but it's simple truth that we accurately treat, teach our children through the form of music. So, uh, we see that this was most likely set to music so that the community could come and sing together and that could help them build up, uplifted, and feel encouraged. We also see that uh, the soul, his soul was engaged. So, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, I rise up. You discern my thoughts. You search out my path, my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways, uh, and, and on and on and on. I think it's about 50 times the psalmist refers to himself. So his soul was clearly engaged. And if you still have a doubt, you can see verse 14 says, Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So this is a situation where he's really engaged in this prayer, and it would be good for us to look at what he's saying. Now, what was the setting uh, under which or in which David composed this. Uh, some say it was when he was a shepherd boy out in the wilderness with a sheep. Now, if you look at all what he's saying here, it would seem that it probably came at a later part of his life after he had experienced a number of things. So in verse 17, for example, he says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! It looks like it was after a number of perhaps even trying experiences that he compiles this reflection. He is considering all that has happened to him and sees God's favor resting on him. Well, what was David's uh, life like? Uh, he was a poor shepherd boy, and then he became this great king who united the kingdom. Uh, he had been through a number of attacks. He survived attacks, wars. He was in crimes. Uh, he was uh, convicted of sin. There's turmoil in the family. Uh, children died. And all kinds of turbulent situations in life. Basically, a turbulent life is what he's had. And so, when he reflects on who God is and his response to that, I think it would be well worth for us to, to pay attention. If you look at uh, the, the psalm again, it starts with the search, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And then it ends, verse 23, that thought, search me, O God. So, the bookends are search. So, this is all about some kind of search that the psalmist is going to tell us about. Uh, if you look at verses 1 through 4, you see, uh, you have searched me and known me. You know, you discern my thoughts. Uh, you are acquainted with all my ways. Uh, you know it altogether. Knowing, discerning, searching, being acquainted, uh, all of that uh, drives home one point, doesn't it? It is that God knows something. God does know something with all those words there about knowing and understanding. Well, what does he know? Number one, verse one, you have searched me. 
and known me. Now, this is not a, um, a, a TSA search for nail clippers or, uh, or a hunt for Pokemon on the go, to be more <laughs> contemporary, right? This search is a whole lot more serious. It, 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 it carries the connotation of cross-examination in, in a legal setting. Uh, it could also, in some places, the word is used for exploration of a country or mining for riches, for treasure. This is real knowing. Somebody who's really gone and looked to find some things out. And then four things are highlighted in the following verse, verses. God knows his movement, verse 2. God knows his thoughts, verse 2. God knows his ways, verse 3. And God knows his words, verse 4. There's not much left to know, is there? Now, two, verse, uh, verse 2. God knows his every movement, uh, sitting down and rising up. He knows everything that's casually done and everything that's seriously done. Sitting up and standing up, sitting down and standing up are kind of two ends of the spectrum, all of life and everything in between. When I sleep, he knows that. When I don't get sleep and I'm tossing and turning, he knows that as well. He also knows my thoughts, uh, as you see, the latter part of verse 2. He knows it from afar, long before my thought becomes a well-formed thought in my mind. He knows it. He discerns it. Uh, this is not just gathering more data. God is not just a huge surveillance camera in the sky. I mean, he is personal and active. He knows what's going on. God not only knows what I'm doing, he knows why I'm doing it. Verse 3. He searches my path. Now, here the word translated search is more like sifting or winnowing. Uh, he, really, he really understands where we're going. Now, our lives may be filled with going from here, there, and everywhere all day long, uh, but he really sees where we are going. He knows where we are going. Whether it be my first wobbly steps as a toddler or my faltering steps as an old man, he knows that. He knows everything. He's intimately acquainted with my ways. Now, if you have children, uh, this is not hard to understand, is it? Uh, we have two boys, and when they were young, when you start getting a few extra hugs and kisses, you know they want something. <laughs> Their list is going to get bigger uh, at Christmas time. Or as they grow up, you get phone calls. You know what they want. Dad, would you please transfer some money into my account? Uh, you live with them. You know them so well that you can almost predict what they're going to do. Just about. And if we as human beings can do that with our children, how much more does God who understands us and knows us? Verse 4. Because before a word is on my tongue, See, behold, that would be the original translation. You know it. He knows my words even before they get to my tongue. Words that are used to build up and words that are used to tear down. He knows them all. Nothing escapes his eye. Now, we play with words. We redefine words. We hedge with words. We present half-truths with words. We cover truths with words. He knows it all. He knows every thought and every word, even before it is formed. Verse 5, you hem me in, or you besiege me, or you enclose me. I have no way to escape 
your knowledge, and you have placed your hand upon me, um, and, 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 and you will not let me escape. I know you inside out. Our hypocrisy, he knows. Our attempts to manipulate people, he knows. He, our words and actions that may be drenched and soaked with grace and goodness, he knows that too. He knows everything. And then he breaks uh, into this um, praise in verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Literally, wonderful, wonderful such knowledge. This knowledge was intoxicating for David, the psalmist. God knows he is not ignorant. Now that brings us to the question. How do we respond to that? Is that frightening or is that freeing? Let's move on. Verse 7 through 12. Verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Whether you go up or down, east or west, from light to darkness, he is there. Verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. That's the underworld where the dead go. Uh, If I ride the wings of the dawn, say I ride the first ray that comes up with sunrise and go as far as it goes. Or if I were to dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, in the deepest parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand, your hand of power will lead me and hold me. If I say darkness shall cover me, Literally, if I say darkness shall crush me, darkness shall bruise me, darkness shall overwhelm me, and the light about me is night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light. For, so whether it is death, heaven or hell, whether it is distance, rays of light, or the far depths of the ocean, or darkness... He sees, I cannot flee from his presence. Well, what if I want to try fleeing from his presence? What might happen? Well, God has not left us ignorant. He has given us some examples. Let's turn to Jonah chapter 1. Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Aha. So here's somebody who says... Let me try fleeing from the presence of the Lord and see what happens. So, uh, the background, uh, God says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. It says, arise, go to Nineveh. And verse 3 says, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. So, he obeyed half the commandment. He rose up. At least he did that much. But here's what he did. God told him to go 600 miles east. And he goes 2,200 miles west. He says, all right, I'll get up. But this is where I'm going, fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now I want you to watch what happens to Jonah. Watch his trajectory in chapter 1. It's fascinating. So, verse number 3. He goes down to Joppa. And then we read, he goes down to the inner part of the ship. And in verse 15 we read, he goes down to the sea. And then we read, He goes into the belly of the fish. So I don't think we have any doubts what's happening, right? It's downhill for Jonah right from the time he started. 
he goes down to Joppa, down to the inner part of the ship, and then down into the water and down into the belly of the whale. Right? Now, that's Jonah's trajectory as he flees from the presence of the Lord. Now, watch what God does. That's even better. So, verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break. So God decides, aha, poof. And there is a tempest, and ships are breaking. He hurls a great wind. And then then you find, in verse 5, the mariners were afraid, and they hurled the cargo. Now everybody's starting to hurl. Now, and then in verse 15, Jonah is hurled into the sea. Watch what's going on. There is a big giant hurl fest, right? God decides to do something. Everybody is throwing things around, right? Now, think about these mariners. They probably had to take this cargo to a destination, sell it, bring home the money so that they could go to their Walmarts or the HEBs, whatever they had during that time. But they couldn't do that. Their lives were affected because of this one Jonah who chose to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, I don't know what it tells you, but it does scare me. Because it tells me that, yes, God is gracious, and most of the time he doesn't let us go through this kind of thing. But it is quite possible that if I choose to flee from the presence of the Lord, he might create so much turmoil in my life and in the life of those around me, those who I love for no fault of their own, just to get my attention. Now, if that doesn't scare you, I don't know what would, right? We, we find Jonah fleeing from the presence of the, of the Lord, causing turmoil all around him and total distress until God gets his attention. He is there. He is there. Not only does he know, he is there. We can't hide from him. He sees what we do in our homes. He sees what we do at work. He sees what we do in between. He sees what we watch on TV. He sees our computer screens. He sees our smartphones. He sees what we read and what we post and what we like and what we dislike. He sees them all. There is nothing that he does not see. So that brings us to another question. Is there anything in your life and mine that would change if we are constantly, constantly aware that he is there? He is there. He is not absent. Does that frighten you or free you? Now, if all that I knew about God was that he knows and he is there, that would be terrifying. Because I don't know what he's going to do. He knows everything. He's everywhere. What on earth is going to happen to me at the next moment? Fortunately for us, the psalmist doesn't uh, stop there. He keeps going. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Heart and soul and mind, you wove it all together. I am a piece of embroidery, a work of art that you have woven together with all kinds of fabrics. Verse 14, I praise you. Uh, for you formed uh, uh, my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I am reverentially, wonderfully, distinctly fashioned 
or created by God. I am somebody special. Now, I am not the product of some randomly programmed machine out there. And then the psalmist says, Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Very well. And then he goes on to say, verse 15, My frame was not hidden from you. You knew my bones when it was all woven together in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes formed my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Your eyes saw my embryo, and in your book were written the number of days. God numbers our days, and he knows them even before they start. Whether they be days that are few or days that are many, we trust our infinitely loving, infinitely wise and sovereign God as we entrust our lives to him. He knows he is there. And then in verse 17, he goes on to recount. How precious to me are your thoughts. They are so valuable the way you look, uh, look to me. Oh God, how vast is the sum of them. They are so numerous. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Not only does he know, not only is he there, he also cares. He cares. He is not indifferent. Now, this is easy to say, but sometimes difficult in practice. So when you wait for about a third of the year for a job, uh, it, it is a lot easier to preach than practice, to, to recognize that God really indeed does care. When there is silence, you wonder, where is God? Is he absent? And none of us are immune to struggles, and struggles come in all different sizes and shapes. It may be financial struggles. It may be, uh, it may be marriage struggles. It may be parental struggles. It may be relational struggles. All kinds of struggles. And silence is an integral part of a lot of these struggles. Is God really there? Does he really know? Does he even care? Now, it is really not that hard to understand in terms of its concept, isn't it? Think about a young mother with a little baby. She lays this bundle of joy in a crib, and the baby's crying. Uh, the mother lets that baby cry for a while and then goes picks up. It is not that the mother is not there. And then again repeats this thing, maybe lets the baby cry a little more, and then goes picks up. It is not that this mother is not powerful, it is not that she doesn't know, but she repeats this thing, right? Silence, an integral part. So when God appears silent in our struggles, his silence is not absence, his silence is not ignorance, his silence is not impotence. His silence is not indifference. He is there and he cares. So how will we respond to this, that God is revealing himself to us this way? Well, first let's look at how the psalmist responds. So, verse 19 through 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. 
So here you find that David really hates everything that God hates. And taking God's name in vain, that was a violation of the second commandment. So he is following God and he is obeying. And then he's wondering, is there anything else that I need to change? So verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Examine me thoroughly. See if there is any grievous way, a wicked way, or an idolatrous way, anything that stands in the way between me and you. Is there anything that needs to change? As I read God's word, is there anything that I need to change by way of obedience? And then lead me in the way everlasting, in the ancient path, in the path that leads to good and life and life abundant. That's his prayer as he responds in reflection to who God is as God revealed himself to the psalmist. So how do we view God and what is our response? Well, I'd love to share with you one writer's response uh, to this. Listen, at first I saw God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of the things I did wrong so as to know whether I merited heaven or hell when I die. He was out there, sort of like the president. I recognized his picture when I saw it, but I didn't really know him. But later on, when I recognized this higher power, it seemed as though life was rather like a bike ride. But it was a tandem bike, and I noticed that God was in the back helping me pedal. I don't know just when it, when it was that he suggested that we change places. But life has not been the same since. Life with God makes life exciting. But when he took the lead, all I could do was hang on. He knew delightful paths, up mountains and through rocky places, and at breakneck speeds. Even though it looked like madness, he said, pedal. I worried and was anxious and asked, where are you taking me? He laughed and didn't answer, and I started to learn trust. I forgot my boring life and entered into adventure. When I'd say I'm scared, he'd lean back and touch my hand. He took me to people with gifts that I needed, gifts of healing, acceptance, and joy. They gave me their gifts to take on my journey, our journey, God's and mine. And we were off again. He said, give the gifts away, their extra baggage, too much weight. So I did to the people we met, and I found that in giving I received, and our burden became light. At first, I didn't trust him with the control of my life. I thought he'd wreck it. But he knows bike secrets, you see. Knows how to make it lean to take sharp corners, dodge large rocks, and speed through scary passages. And I'm learning to shut up and pedal in the strangest places. I'm beginning to enjoy the view and the cool breeze on my face with my delightful, constant companion. And when I am sure I just can't do it anymore, he just smiles and says, pedal. Will we pedal in faith? 
Will we, like David, ask God to examine us, show us where we need correction, what we need to do to move in the everlasting way? And will we choose to obey his word even in the little things of life, in our words, in our actions, and our thoughts? He knows. He is there. He cares. Father, we are so grateful for revealing this to us, revealing yourself to us in a way that we can follow you. Thank you for overwhelming us with your grace and your love. Give us hearts that respond in obedience to follow you all the days of our life and to live in your house forever. We pray this in Jesus, our Lord's name.